the incomparable. Number 425, September 2018. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. In this episode, we are looking at a movie. It is a particular favorite movie of mine. I can't believe we really haven't covered it before. I was talking about it with Anthony Johnston, and he was he said insisted that if we were to do an episode about 1998's Alex Proyas directed Dark City, he must be included. Anthony Johnston, are you out there? Did you make it on this episode at last? I have been included, it would seem, yes. Um, well, I mean, to the point where I already talked about this on Unjustly Maligned uh, about 18 months ago. So, yes, I am a big, big fan of this movie, and I'm very happy to talk about it even more. Excellent, excellent. Also joining us to talk about it, it's not just going to be me and Anthony. Uh, it's also going to be Erica Ensign. Hello, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me to talk about another Jennifer Connelly movie scored by mm-hmm. Trevor Jones. Indeed. I, I pointed out <laughs> to my wife uh, last night as we were watching this movie that this makes three Jennifer Connelly movies. And she said, OK, The Rocketeer. And I said, Labyrinth. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, Labyrinth. Yeah. Excellent. So it's good to have you here on uh, the Jennifer Connelly Film Festival, <laughs> something like that. Also joining us is Anje Tomic. Hello. Yes, there's a connection between the Dark City and the Thornbirds. <laughs> there isn't really. I'm just, you know, this is a callback. <laughs> Reaching deep cut. Uh, there probably is somehow in the Thornbirds. You got to, you got people got to listen back to the, to find out the connections about the Thornbirds and the holiday traditions involving the Thornbirds in Slovenia. Um, we so it's funny talking about movies that we've watched and Erica's first episode of the incomparable was the matrix, which was made in Australia, like dark city, the year following dark city. And at several points, it, I, I was struck this time at several points about how this movie absolutely had to be influential, either mm-hmm. indirectly influential of The Matrix, or at least it represents trends in movie making in the <laughs> late 90s and storytelling. I, I think that's more like there, it. You know, there is a moment where characters go down a staircase and make a, a door appear that wasn't there before that I was like, hmm, okay, interesting. <laughs> uh, no cat appears in Dark City, though. There are no animals in Dark City. Uh, strangely i guess strangers don't like animals um i think it is definitely about trends in the zeitgeist and all that because they were actually filming they were actually filming at more or less the same time in australia uh now obviously you know word gets around crew move around between you know production to production and stuff but just because of the length of time it literally takes to make a movie uh yes there are similarities and the matrix kind of killed dark city at the uh box office unfortunately as a result but Mm -hmm. i've never sort of held that against the matrix but it was 1998 and the matrix was 99 pre-millennial tension was a real thing i think so and and uh and darkness and paranoia and all sorts of things Mm. like that uh but so for those who don't know what uh, dark city is it is directed by alex proyas whose most notable movie at this point was the crow i believe um it was it came to my attention because roger ebert said it was the best movie of 1998 and later listed it among his great movies and i watched it so i discovered it on video and um there's a great the dvd and now up to the blu-ray there is this is one of i think like five movies that has a complete roger ebert commentary track he likes this movie so much um he loved this movie so much that he 
recorded uh, commentary track, and it's on the regular edition and the director's edition, where he comments yep. on what changed in the director's edition from the regular wow. edition <laughs> of the release. So Ebert was a huge fan of it. Um, Alex Proyas's career since then has been spotty, I would say, <laughs> but he is a very interesting director with a lot of visual flair. And this is a movie, it stars Rufus Sewell, Jennifer Connelly, and Kiefer Sutherland, along with a lot of very pale people. And William Hurt. And William Hurt, yes, that's right. A, a, a lot of very pale people, pale tall people in trench coats wearing hats. Also, a lot of... A lot of Australians doing kind of New York noir accents that aren't quite right. Yeah. See that that was that was going to be one of my questions because as uh, you probably can't tell, but I'm not a native speaker. But I have a, I have trouble recognizing like other people doing American accents. They all kind of sound okay, but even like in this one now, when I first saw it in '98, it was all fine. It was all very American, very New Yorky. Mm-hmm. But now when I saw it again, I was like, that's not. Really no, like that. You can just, <laughs> just and, and I actually recognize the the guy that plays the the cop that goes crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually starred in a uh, sort of CSI type show from Australia called Water Rats, ah. which was on TV in ah, Slovenia. Wow. So yeah, I, I, I when I first saw Dark City, and then in like early two thousands, I think we had the Water Rats show, and I was like, I've seen that guy before. And it's the same guy. So that's how I knew he was not an American. So this time when I saw it, I was like, I could probably pull off that accent. Like, that was pretty bad. <laughs> well, and Rufus Sewell himself, of course, is British. He's not American mm-hmm. either. Yeah, well, my I have no problem with it in this. Usually that bugs the crap out of me. But in this movie, everything is so sort of stylized and removed from what we know to actually be reality that, you know what? Accents shift. And also, it has a narrative reason. Like, so much of the things in this movie that seem artificial, when you think about it, it's like, actually, that kind of has a story-based reason for it as well. Yep, that's exactly what I mean. It's not bad. I mean, they are, like, literally playing parts in a noir drama. That is is the, the story underneath the story, which I would say is my favorite thing overall about Dark City, is the fact is, it is a... It is a noir crime tale told as a little like a like a, a layer <laughs> papering over a completely bonkers science fiction story. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a total straight up sci-fi, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but but the top layer of it, the, the the frosting that you have to scrape off to find the super scary people with syringes underneath is this, you know, I mean, you can hear the pitch, right? It's like a guy wakes up in a hotel room or in a, and and there's a dead woman there and the, there's blood all over him and what is it what does it all mean? He doesn't have any memory of it. And and he's on the run and it turns out that they investigate his wife and he she she had an affair and he left and went to the hotel and there is a chain of vict- I mean there's this whole totally standard noir detective story with i guess william hurt at the center of it um and that's just not what the story is about that is just that's and i love that about it that it's still it's still there it's like there's some other movies like this where it's like the and the matrix echoes it but there are other movies too where it's like there's an the echo in the plot like the plot keeps kind of wanting to pop up little little plot 
related things. Um, and this movie is like that too, where they're like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> He's supposed to be a killer. I would even forgotten about that because this movie got so weird, but it's like, nope, it's, it keeps <laughs> coming back around and they eventually, uh, you know, there, there ends up being a, another character who is also sort of Rufus Sewell, but not. And he, uh, and, and he's got the plot going on in his head. So he keeps reminding us of it too. It's just kind of a fascinating thing. And it's not, I mean, you're right that the mystery isn't really what the movie's about, but it is in the sense that it's 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 a massive parallel to all the themes of the story of right. nature versus nurture and you know he wakes up with, i mean spoilers big spoiler horn here uh-huh. uh, i think probably for most of this because it's difficult to talk about this movie without spoiling yeah you it, should but, watch the movie go watch the movie mm-hmm. now but we're going to talk about the what what is underneath that layer now <laughs> Because the very idea that he wakes up with no memory and everybody says, oh, you're a serial killer. And then he, you know, has to think, well, hang on, am I a serial killer? Do I have the urge to kill? And we see that with the scene with Melissa George's character. Right. You know, he's sort of fighting against like, am I, is this what I do? I don't know. Who am I? And of course, that's exactly what the the deeper layer underneath is about exactly. is can you you know what sort of person are you are you more than your memories or are they all that matters about you right so what is revealed and, and we'll we'll go through the plot but but just to, to say it outright now that we've blown the spoiler horn here is <laughs> the, the dark dark city is an experiment these people are having their memories replaced on an ongoing basis the city is reconfigured on an ongoing basis by these strange pale tall people in trench coats known as the strangers who are aliens who are experimenting on people dark city is floating out in space it's never daytime there which is a great moment uh, throughout when it's like you ever realize you know that it's never it's never daytime how did i miss the daylight <laughs> see the sun yeah. and then they are they are experimenting on them and in fact very specifically rufus sewell's character is being experimented on and the experiment is if everything around you says you're a serial killer but you personally are not a serial killer um, do you say, I guess I'm a serial killer, or is there some human nature? Do you behave like one? Are you your memories, or are you not? Because the strangers have a collective memory and a collective uh, consciousness, and they don't understand individuality, so they're trying to test all of these concepts out because they're a dying there's something about they're a dying race and they're they think that use being more like humans will allow them to survive and so it is an experiment he is it is not a, just a theme of the movie he's literally in the plot of the movie being tested in that way i just, I just wanted to say because when we were talking about the matrix because it was the same year that's how the movie was pitched to me like in, i don't know in 98 or 99 it's the previous year but yeah yeah and like um i they, the, the reason i really have fond memories of dark city is because this is one of the first sort of pirated movies I saw, <laughs> which, which, which I, I, I sort of made up now because I just bought it on Google Play. So I just want to put That's that good. out there. So, you know, uh, but but it was sort of pitched to me, oh, this is like the Matrix, only darker. And, you know, I was 15 at the time or 16. I was like, yeah, darker. darker right? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> and and kind of li- like it stuck with me. Like the, it's one of those movies that I, you know, I could have just forgotten it because it's just like a sci-fi thing. But I, I know it really stayed with me somehow 
and I think like from the, the, the initial time I saw it, I think I maybe saw it one more time in between and now this weekend. So I just wanted to say that because that, that the whole Matrix thing really loomed large over this movie. But even in Slovenia, we were swapping hard drives around with, you know, the, with a few people that had broadband and would just download stuff. This was one of those movies that came highly recommended huh. by basically the pirates. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just wanted to say that. Pirate approved. Highly <laughs> yeah. recommended by the pirates. Well, that's 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 an endorsement. By contrast, I went into the movie knowing nothing about it. I mean, I literally knew nothing other than it was Alex Proyas, uh, and I did enjoy The Crow. Um, but I think, you know, part of the reason probably that it's stuck with you because I've seen this movie so many times over the years now, probably the, one of the reasons that it sticks with me, certainly, is it is visually striking, obviously, like The Matrix was, but in yeah. a different way. Anybody who's seen The Crow, or even iRobot, knows that, you know, Proyas is a very visually arresting director. Um, but also, it really is, it's a smart movie that asks smart questions. And yes, it dresses them up in a sci-fi plot with aliens and, you know, a murder mystery and all that sort of stuff. But at the heart of it, these are genuinely interesting questions. And there aren't that many movies that do that anymore. Yeah. And also the whole noir aspect, I think, is something that, I don't know, at least from my perspective, it was one of those things that I think those kind of movies kind of stopped coming out from America. At least I don't have it in my memory, like in the 90s, like a bunch of noir movies, you know, where there's a like a detective and like, you know, some women and, you know, all of that stuff. We had this, you had seven, there was Usual Suspects. Yeah, there was, you know, a bit of a noir revival in the 90s that, and again, I think some of that can be put down to premillennial tension that we don't seem to have really embraced again since. Yeah, yeah, it was a slew of them. And and like, I don't know, this one, because of the sci-fi stuff, I think kind of, like you said, makes it... I think that, that it, it endeared it more to me somehow because it had that sci-fi element. Uh, it was if it was just like a straight, you know, maybe just the, if the sci-fi was just the swapping of the memories, I'd be like, eh, whatever, you know. But like you said, it actually it's like a smart movie. That's a pretty good uh-huh. way of putting it. Um, yeah. There's another '90s movie that this movie reminds me of too, but I'll get there when we get to that that part of it. <laughs> um, uh, so we're gonna start in the plot by talking about the fact that there are two versions of this movie because (laughs) if you watch the original theatrical release which is also the original dvd release what you will see is a uh there's an introductory voiceover as Hmm. so many movies are started with a voiceover where Kiefer sutherland explains large portions of what you're about to see in advance in such a way that it's not even really very helpful no it's not helpful well they're trying to cloak it a little bit no it's still deliberately obscure isn't it yeah Yeah, but but it's 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 super weird the director's cut has no opening voiceover and uh, is also longer so there are some scenes that are extended and added to um, but the big the big change i think is that obviously the studio this is the blade runner story all over again obviously the studio said mm-hmm. oh no 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 this is too weird can you put a voiceover at the front that explains a little bit of what's going on and it's essentially Kiefer sutherland's uh explanation from later in the movie moved forward yeah. but obviously alex Proyas was like sure uh yeah we'll do that and then there's and it's super obscure and weird um but unnecessary and i'm i having not seen i think the director's version before because i had the old original dvd and i bought the blu-ray for this um i'm always in favor of not having voiceovers at the beginning of movies so i approve here here yeah you know the first time i saw it i there was the voiceover on it but i i think 
I was so put off by the affectation that Kiefer Sutherland is using for his speech in this entire movie, <laughs> except for the flashbacks, which we'll get to. Um, and and because it was written sort of obscurely and because he talks so f- like like everything else in this movie, it moves really fast. Um, I I think I either didn't understand it or I forgot it within seconds of him saying all that stuff. So I I really feel like even though I heard that voiceover the first time, I still went into it feeling like I would have if I had seen the director's cut first because when when Rufus Sewell wakes up and he doesn't know who he is and what's happening like I had no idea who those guys were <laughs> like I was completely yeah. in the dark so the voiceover didn't even help well and the voiceover there's nothing in there that you can grab onto if you've seen the movie <laughs> then you can sort of pick out bits of it and go, yes. oh, that's what he's talking about but if you haven't seen it yet the only thing that you could possibly grab onto is he says and then the strangers came and brought us here and obviously in the context of the movie that mm-hmm. is a significant thing except that if you haven't seen it yet that means nothing strangers <laughs> could mean right. anyone so it's really not helpful but i saw the we saw it in theatres when it was released, so I saw the version with the voiceover first as well, and I still fell in love with it, even in oh, sure. that version. So I don't think mm-hmm. it... I would always suggest to people that they should watch the director's cut, but it's not one of those cases where the theatrical release is is dreadful, uh, and you know, and you need right. to, like Daredevil or something, and the, the director's cut is the only thing that ma- helps it make any sense. Um, it's still a great movie, it's just that the director's cut is better. It's better. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. So after the narration, or not... Um, we see the most nineties font ever used. That's true. Sci-fi movie. That's <laughs> yeah, all yeah. I'm gonna say. It's the most. That's like a CD cover from 1998. Like I just want to. Um, like it's the. It's uh, it was actually great because that's my childhood basically. So it was awesome, but it's so just. Uh-huh. I don't know. It's nineties as it gets probably. Sorry, just wanted to throw that out. <laughs> this episode of the Incomparable is brought to you in part by Linode. Linode lets you have access to a suite of powerful hosting options. Prices start at just $5 a month. I use Linode, one Linode server host, The Incomparable, and six colors, and pretty much everything else I do. You can be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in less than a minute. Whether you're just getting started with your first server or deploying a complex system, Linode is the right choice. They offer the fastest hardware, the fastest network, fantastic customer support behind it all, in case you get in a jam. It's never been easier to launch a Linode cloud server. Use their little web interface. Super easy. I am not a Unix server super genius, but I can use their little web page. Click on the dashboard. There's a terminal you can bring up in the web page to connect to your server, or you can SSH in. It's all there. It's all easy. There's good support. Great web tools. 99.9% guaranteed uptime for server availability. Once that server gets up, they're going to keep it that way. And you can get additional storage, too. Block storage is out of beta and available in the Fremont and Newark data centers right now. Linode is great for tasks like hosting large databases, running a mail server, operating a VPN, running Docker containers, hosting a private Git server, running your own podcast network, running your own tech blog. Oh, those last two, that's me. That's what I do on my Linode server. Also, Linode, they're hiring right now. So if you are interested in a job at Linode, go to linode.com slash careers. Great pricing options available. Plans start at one gig of RAM for $5 a month. High memory plans start at 16 gigs of RAM. As a listener to the Incomparable, you can sign up at linode.com slash Snell. You'll be supporting 
us, and t- you'll get $20 toward any Linode plan. On the one gig of RAM plan, that's four free months. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, there's nothing to lose. Go to Linode.com slash Snell to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that $20 credit, or just use the promo code Snell2018 when you check out. Thank you, Linode, for running everything I do on the internet and for supporting the incomparable. So then then uh, Rufus Sewell wakes up. He's in a bathtub. Uh, of purple water. Yep. There's blood on his forehead. And the light's moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He gets out of the... Yes. We don't know, again, what very noirish. What is this all about? He gets out of the the uh, the bathtub. Um, he There's a, a whole bunch of stuff going on here. Um, he knocks over a fishbowl, uh, and, and it shatters, and he picks up the fish and puts it in the bathtub. Um, there's a, a smashed syringe on the floor. There is a card, a postcard from Shell Beach, a greetings from Shell Beach card, which causes a brief flash in him of presumably Shell Beach with a lot of music sort of playing backwards and it's super hazy and we'll, we'll, we'll see more of this as the movie goes Very psychedelic. Yes, it is. And, uh, he gets a call who says he's from his doctor and they're experimenting on you and you've lost memory and there are people coming and you should run which um you know again is is very matrix like in the setup there Mm -hmm. but again i i do agree with antony i think most likely it was in the water in the late 90s (laughs) and there's a dead girl in the corner who's got blood uh like cuts on her that are in spiral patterns um and and this is his shock moment of like oh my god did i did i kill her or whatever but it's too late creepy guys in coats with hats are coming for him as the doctor promised one of the things i want to say about this opening segment as well is that uh well there are two really significant things about it the first is that until that phone call there's no dialogue and yet and again this ties back into sort of whether or not you need the voiceover (laughs) with eat without any dialogue whatsoever uh rufus sewell does an amazing job of conveying the fact that he's confused and he doesn't know where he is Mm -hmm. and he has no memory and he doesn't understand what's going on. I I think it's a really, given that he was practically an unknown when uh, he started in this, I think it's a really impressive performance. But the other thing, uh, and Ebert points this out in one of his commentaries, for the first, I can't remember, I think it's something like the first 14 cuts or something, the camera doesn't move. And every shot is framed almost as if it's a graphic novel where with the action taking place inside a static camera frame uh, rather than moving the camera and that's something that recurs throughout the movie there are lots of shots like that with a still locked camera and then the action moves through the frame um and Proyas has said that you know this is partly because of a love of comic books and that medium uh and i it's the sort of thing that you don't notice until it's pointed out to you and then you do and you go wow that's quite impressive so i just wanted to point it out for people who might watch it again and the light is the light is moving Uh. like that's that's my that's one of my favorite moments because it gets a callback like right at the end yeah like because uh the the kiefer sutherland basically moves it when he he's thrown uh from sewell right and i just because i I, yeah, I, I just remember, yeah, not the lamp, because I, I remember when I first saw it, I'm like, why is the light moving? There's nobody in the room. Like, I, I was mad, right? And then it kind of gets explained <laughs> later on. I know, it's just like this small moment, but I love that. Like, I just, I love that. That's one of the things I love overall about this movie is that everything is explained. There is nothing yes. is wasted. Correct. Nothing yep. is left dangling. There are no hanging plot threads and every single element, every line of dialogue, every prop, every scene, everything 
is significant and has a meaning and builds towards the story. And that, again, you know, frankly, there are lots of movies that do not do that. And I, that's one of the reasons I really admire this, just as a piece of craft, as well as a thoroughly enjoyable movie. We, uh, so we get, we get the him on the run. Um, he is scolded uh, by the guy at the front desk of the hotel uh, or the crappy motel or whatever it is saying you paid for three weeks but your three weeks are up uh, the the automat called your wallet is there you should probably get it so you can pay me cash on the barrel head yeah cash on the barrel head yep. which is one of those moments of like yeah, yeah hello australian <laughs> i see what you're doing there <laughs> i've never heard that phrase before this movie i oh, really? never heard it yeah yeah never heard it at all <laughs> i had what's well, there's a country song called cash on the barrel head which oh okay mm. right it's super stylized though that that is not something that a, a regular person would say i don't know that that's true okay <laughs> <laughs> well, I say it now. <laughs> See, I, I I'm not seeing anything that disproves my point that a regular person would not say. Yeah. <laughs> Fair, the, the the automat thing, right? Is that a was that a thing? I don't. Yes. I don't, I don't, I, yes. Oh, that's this is one of my favorite parts of the movie. I only knew of automats from watching actual like noir movies from the well, 40s movies, yeah. and from from books and stuff. So ah. I, I don't know. Just like I don't, a few months back, for some reason, I randomly brought up automats and was talking to to my spouse Stephen, and he was like what on earth are you talking to and i had to explain it to him but yeah to me i wish like well they kind of have come back in their own way with vending machines but i just love the idea of a restaurant where they're making fresh food you go in you don't have to talk to a person you simply yeah. put a coin in a <laughs> slot you open a window you take a plate of food and you go and you sit down and eat you have your choice there's no interaction it's wonderful and uh and yeah i always thought that the idea of an automat was amazing so when it popped up here i was like oh this is this is the sort of style they're going for i was uh i was pretty excited it's like an edward hopper version of yo sushi <laughs> okay i actually got that okay sorry <laughs> sorry uh just uh the the the, the thing that strike like struck me because like over here in slovenia like we will say automat for a, like a, a vending machine is basically right. an automat mm-hmm. but it's like almost like a slang term i think there's like a proper way to say the vending machine right yeah. but i just never knew it v- looks very atomic age americana type thing right yes that's that's exactly right the idea the idea that there's a, it's a whole restaurant that's just done by via vending machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just yep. love the the shot where it's the the sign says banana and he removes the sign and then <laughs> places like that's I don't know just uh, that was fun. Apparently, the last automat went out of business in New York in 1991, so there was still like a you know wow. one left holding but, on. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, it was it was much more common because it looks like a proper diner. Mm-hmm. There was a uh, character in Agent Carter the TV show who her job was as a waitress at an automat. And I, I said to myself, come on, um, come on guys. You no, can do better. No, no, that's no, that's not a thing that existed then. But anyway, he does go to the automat. Uh, the, the guy at the automat puts his wallet behind the thing. Like, but he's the, the money's in the wallet, but the, but it's okay. What a jerk. Cause you know what Rufus Sewell does? He uses the power of his mind to make a wave come out and smash the automat door open mm-hmm. so he can take his wallet whoa what's going on does he have strange powers of some sort right and that's the first sign isn't it that's the first clue that like oh this is like not normal this is something weird in sci-fi 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I want to back up, though, because what we get before that is uh, the, the creepy people uh, who are the strangers, um, they uh, they get the hotel manager. Uh, he's like, where was he? He's like, oh, you just missed him. Um, and then we cut to a club where Jennifer Connelly is singing. And mm-hmm. one of the choices that strikes me every time is that she is, you know, okay, so the woman in the noir story is a is a torch singer. She's on the stage in a smoky club singing. She's backlit at one point. She's spotlit. You know, we get the whole thing, right? The whole thing. What always, and she's beautiful. It's Jennifer Connelly. The thing that strikes me about it every time is the music they're playing is not, it, it's like period music and yet not it is it is this strange combination of it's like a modern take for the 90s on Mm. that kind of music that you'd get in the 40s let's say and i love it i I love it every time because it's like that is one signal the movie is sending you that first off it's modern and second off that something is wrong here because it's 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 a facsimile of a singer in a club in the 40s but it's not right because there's there it's almost anachronistic i love that about it well it's like the scenes that you get on the subway which are very much not 1940s right you know you, you it's more like 1970s sort of pelham one two three or french connection kind of you know style exactly dirty new york subway yeah right and you're like hang you know times square and all and you're like hang on that's not not right that doesn't fit with the aesthetic <laughs> that everything else belongs to yeah. And yeah, the song is the same sort of thing. It's uh, as you say, it's a clue. Like I said, nothing is nothing is mistaken. Uh, sorry, is accidental yeah. in this movie. It's not it's not a rock song, but it feels like a uh, a 30s or 40s standard written by somebody in the 90s who's trying but is influenced by modern music, right? Which song is she singing in the first scene? Is that Sway or Yeah. Because that is that's a Dean Martin song. Okay, so, I mean, so it's, it's just the way it's arranged. It is yeah. not right. Like there is something right. about it that is way too modern for the setting, and it hits me every time. So the song is the song is old, but the arrangement is not. And it's just I like that that it's just it's not quite right. It feels a little too modern, a little anachronistic, and that's good because this is a weird place, and it is anachronistic. <laughs> again, uh, again, anything that might be a flaw if you were trying to make a period movie. It's fine mm-hmm. here. It's Dark City. Yeah, forget it. It's Dark City. <laughs> Excuses built in. And the shot is kind of nice. Like, it's one of those, oh, yeah. you know, we're talking about visual flair and stuff. It really is. We neglected to mention the leader of the strangers who are chasing John Murdoch at this point. Uh, because we do, we do see him. We have yep. seen him by this point, haven't we? And that's Richard yeah, O'Brien, really. the amazing Richard O'Brien, for whom this part was specifically written. Oh, interesting. By the way. Yep. Yeah, Proyas apparently was such a fan of O'Brien as Riff Raff in Rocky Horror hmm. uh, that he specifically wrote this part for Richard O'Brien. And I mean, and you, he plays it beautifully. Yes. Mm-hmm. It is perfect. Um, the other scene we get in here is the detective part where <laughs> William Hurt... Here's our noir detective who's investigating the murders. He's playing a, I want to say according, but it's like a concertina or something. It's a, he's got a little squeeze box thingy that he's playing. Um, and it, like there's a murder. Um, it's got all those, you know, again, all the noir trademarks are being thrown at us, but it's not quite right because that's what this yeah. movie is. Smoky office, piles of paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he does such a great job as that. Like he just, from moment one, he feels like that put upon noir cop who's just trying to do his job. 
poor guy. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the shoelaces with the young cop and stuff. Yeah. Yep. I just, yeah. He's, he's like, I, when I was watching it now, like, this is one of my favorite roles that he's ever done, probably. And I've seen a lot of his stuff, like, with stuff that he's been in. And he's really, like, he's really good in this, at least to my eye. Like, he's, he's genuinely awesome. Like, yeah. He inhabits this role. He's kind of, he just has it absolutely down to a T. And he's one of the things that makes the movie so watchable for me because he's so grounded and uh so absolutely refuses to believe that anything is wrong because, you know, the old, I'm just a cop. I'm just doing my job. Mm -hmm. Uh, I take it like I see it, you know, but without being over the top, it would be so easy for him to take this character too far. And instead he actually pulls back and kind of, you know, reduces the role. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, just a look here, a raised eyebrow there, a grunt and a shrug here and there. Just brilliant. Absolutely love it. The script here is also generous to him because there is a, this, there's a version of this movie where he can't see the artifice of Dark City and just insists throughout that Rufus Sewell Mm -hmm. is the killer. And that is, this, he's not that. He is logical. And when things Mm -hmm. don't add up, I mean, he says, so we get that, we get that scene in a moment, we're going to get it where, um, where we have this first, his first interactions in the case. And then very quickly thereafter, there's a scene where he's like, after he's seen John Murdoch, uh, Rufus Sewell, for the first time, where he's like, I don't know, it doesn't add up. He doesn't seem like he's mm-hmm. a killer. And like in another movie, another version of this case, he would just be the dogged investigator. He would be the antagonist here getting in the way of the plot. And he's not. He's just not. He, he's smarter mm-hmm. than that. Yep. And that's, I mean, that's sort of another noir thing, too, is you get the, I mean, you can have crappy detectives in noir movies, but quite often they are just trying to do their job. And like, the, you know, the scene slightly later where we get my favorite of his lines, which is nobody listens to, no one ever listens to me. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's, that. to your point, Anthony, he, he sort of, he underplays the role, which I think is really the only good way to stand out in a movie like this, where you right. have such uh, outrageous set design and everything is so stylized, you you know, you don't want to also play up the the stylizedness of it, unless you're a, a pale bald guy in a trench coat, because that makes sense. <laughs> yes. But when you're when you're just a detective wearing a fedora, no, he I think he he pitches it perfectly. Yeah, he, he's the anti Kiefer Sutherland. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'll have words about that later. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of The Incomparable is brought to you in part by Amazon Prime Video Channels. Now, what are those? Well, Prime Video Channels are another perk available. To Amazon Prime customers. The two-day shipping is great, but you can also create entertainment instantly through Prime Video channels. Whatever you're into, you can build your own great TV lineup from over a hundred premium and specialty channels. Let's see what's in there. Hmm, CBS All Access, home of Star Trek Discovery, a whole bunch more. I hear the good fight is really good too. Discovery's coming back. They're doing a bunch of short films starting in October. Um, you get access to live NFL games and stuff like that. There's CBS shows that you get access to as well. That's a pretty good one. Um, BritBox and Acorn, two great British channels. They've got other stuff from Europe and Australia and New Zealand and places like that. BritBox has the entire classic Doctor Who run. Well, okay, it's missing a few episodes because contracts but it is the only place where you're going to get hundreds of hours of doctor who classic doctor who on britbox and then acorn third season of detectorists is on there it's great here's the best thing about prime channels 
seven-day free trial of any channel you want to buy. Yes, including BritBox, including CBS All Access, including HBO and Stars and Showtime. Stars, that means that you could get Outlander and Counterpart. My favorite new TV show, Counterpart, is on Stars. You can sign up for Stars too. After you've started a channel subscription, you can watch your movies and shows wherever and whenever you want with the Prime Video app. You don't have to get another app. You watch inside the Prime Video app. I set this up. I turned on BritBox on the seven-day trial trial and just like that i was in my prime video app that was already on my apple tv and now i'm watching classic doctor who and it was all there just for me to watch it was pretty awesome who doesn't love curling up on the sofa and binge watching something it's like game of thrones you start from the beginning sign up for hbo and start watching that having access to so many more shows means you can really make the most of your downtime and only pay for the channels you want with prime video channels start your free trial of over a hundred channels today by going to tryprimechannels.com slash snell that's tryprimechannels.com slash snell my last name for a free trial of over a hundred channels thanks to prime video channels for their support of the incomparable so um in the automat wait we get that automat scene um he is saved uh from the cops by the prostitute who saw him on the way in she pulls him out and they're like all right we'll let you go because they're just giving him a hard time and he of course is paranoid that he's going to be blamed for the murders of all the other prostitutes um Mm -hmm. there are six dead so far uh we get a we get a snippet of uh, walensky who is the last detective to work the case who is now crazy who keeps talking about how you can't get out there's no way out of the city which it is you know as you watch the movie more times you realize he's totally figured it out he's everything he says is correct right he is he is insane but he's also dead right yeah Yeah. he's been driven insane by the truth essentially because he's figured out he's followed the leads as a good detective and discovered that there is no way out of the city they're trapped in it but he doesn't have magical powers or anything like rufus Sewell does so all he can do is go crazy um but we do see so jennifer connelly uh comes to bumstead the detective or the 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 investigator to talk about uh her husband because it turns out like it's like her husband is missing but ha 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 it's the guy on the ledger uh at the hotel where they found the dead prostitute so he he has a conversation but she's like my my husband couldn't have done this um so they they get their first scene together and then we see the next thing is is rufus sewell um at she he's back at the prostitute's place and this is melissa george in her first film role i think i think so um and uh basically he he does he's looking through his wallet to find out what he who what his name is which is fun like what are the j names i could be and he's like oh john sure and um but he he leaves and then later he says like this was his him testing himself like it well if i i had the opportunity to kill her i have no desire to kill her therefore i am probably not the killer here this is one of the big differences between the theatrical and the director's cut. In the director's cut version, um, the prostitute has a child who is there, and he, Rufus Sewell, uh, John, notices notices the kid, and and that's sort of that's why he leaves, or you think right. maybe that's why he leaves. Whereas in the theatrical release, that's one of the things I like better in the theatrical release is that he simply chooses to leave because he realizes, like he can, he he doesn't have the the impulse to try to kill her, and he apparently doesn't have the impulse to sleep with her either so he just gets up and leaves whereas um he's it's something else sort of prompting that in the other version 
It does add to the mystery, though, because seeing the child and him leaving uh, maintains the mystery for the viewer. Of, That's true. Is he, is he the killer or not? And especially when we then, you know, when, when she's then later revealed to have been killed and we already know that he suffers from memory loss. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the director's cut, I think, uh, actually sort of keeps the mystery a mystery longer. Than True. the theatrical. The, the child also leads to that great, the great moment later on where it's like, oh yeah, I drew a picture of what happened to my mother. It was these three tall, uh, oh, yeah. skinny guys in hats and <laughs> yeah. coats who killed them. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> it's those guys. And, I, and it's like one of those, it's like a child's picture that's all colored uh-huh. in. Which is kind of impressive after seeing, you know, your parent basically getting murdered. Just right, she took a long time over that drawing. Yeah. Yeah. She was waiting in the waiting room at the at the police department for a while. And they just gave her crayons. And she's like, I'm going to draw lots of blood and those murderers and my mom being dead. And here, how, does that help? Yes, it does. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, kid. Thank you. Um, let's see. So, uh, he, oh, he also sees Murdoch sees, uh, he finds clippings of the murders that theoretically have been, you know, basically planted on him that like, like they're, they're, uh, like he, he's the killer and he's saving him, but that freaks him out. Um, and then they find him, the, 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 the creeps, uh, in the trench coats find him and they say sleep and, uh, he doesn't. And then they, they, they fight and he yeah. uses his mind power to, uh, make them fall. And they, they, this is the declaration where they, well, they realize that they can levitate and do, you know, yeah. all manner of strange things. And one of them is a child. It, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, later they say, uh, that they use the bodies of dead people and they inhabit them that's where they get these bodies so there's a child that's extra creepy and this is also the moment where they see rufus sewell use his power to do this to fight them off and run away it's also where we realize that they're aliens because it's during this scene Mm -hmm. that one of them gets decapitated yeah Yeah. the clock hand swings down chops off the back of the head of one of them and like a glass spidery kind of creature pops out and uh they do say at one point in here he can tune which is (laughs) the first sign that tuning tuning is uh the thing that right although if you don't have the the subtitles on you have no idea what word it is that they are saying not not me yeah i was like he can tube tune boom i have no idea (laughs) what he can do there but he can do something that is unexpected wait what is it sound like what does it sound like to americans because to me that's just tune it's just not very clear and they all say it slightly differently so i couldn't tell what the what the consonant if there was supposed to be even be a consonant at the end of the uh of the word i I was the same yeah he could choose he can i don't know yeah also the t is almost like a uh, the ch Uh, a basically yeah. anyway uh, <laughs> he can sneeze. I, I also uh, that seems great uh, the, the one like little thing in that scene i like is there there's a pulley system underneath the scaffolding yes and mm-hmm. they got they get caught up into in the pulley system and i'm mm-hmm. like that that took some work to, to you know figure all of that out and then the, the hand has to swing and cut the guy's head off so the glass alien can come out <laughs> like it's i don't know it's a it's a weird action scene where it kind of I, I love the effort that was put into it you know mm-hmm. it's sort of it, that that whole scene probably could have been just him you know using the the tune power yeah. <laughs> to, to basically make make them go away but it's it's more complicated than that there are parts like that throughout this whole movie, like the the bit that we just saw with William Hurt and Jennifer Connelly. There's, and this is called out on the uh, director's cut commentary. Uh, the end of that scene, the last 
like two lines, if that, are spoken. They're in William Hurt's office. It's a tiny little cramped, uh, you know, smoky noir detective's office. They have a long scene in it, a very good scene. And then for the last, like, two lines, they leave the office and go into this massive, you know, cop situation room type thing with yeah. desks and extras everywhere. And it's a long shot so you can... I mean, it's effective because it, what it does is it really isolates her character and gives you a sense of her her own sense of helplessness but it's literally just two lines like they mm. you know if they were looking to save money those lines could easily have been spoken there's no reason right. that they had to leave the room to say them but they went to the effort and they built that whole set which is not used much throughout the rest of the movie no, it's not. <laughs> just so they could do that yeah there's a couple of like set pieces like that where it's you know that you you see you see like a lot of effort being put in i think like even like i don't know subconsciously or when you're watching movies that do that it does put an extra sort of there's more meat on the bone is what i'm saying when you watch it it feels expansive yeah 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 it feels sort of even like just you can sort of feel the effort being put into it and kind of makes the scene better at least in my opinion like that's why the the whole pulley system like there's no reason for that like why is it they could just fall to the ground and stuff but you know it kind of i don't know this mm-hmm. yeah uh, we get our next scene uh, between Rufus Sewell and Jennifer Connelly. Uh, she gets back from the police station and he is already there. Um, she says, your, your doctor is looking for you. He has no memory and this upsets her. Obviously, he doesn't remember her. He doesn't remember anything about this. She explains the storyline, which is that she had an affair and he was angry. He proclaims he is not a killer. But of course, Bumstead has followed her back and has been watching the place and realizes that he's there and uh and catches rufus sewell but jennifer connelly uh basically engages with william hurt uh, with enough time for rufus sewell to jump down the stairs and get out and then at one point yes he uses his tuning power to make a door appear where there isn't one and he goes through it in order to escape can, can i just say the door appearing and disappearing that CGI effect, like it's, I, I think it still holds up. Like it's still a good mm-hmm. effect, which is not something you can say about the glass squid thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or for the psychic battle at the climax. Yeah, there are. Yeah, the- it's it's sort of. But I, I was surprised because I didn't know what I was gonna. You know, the last time I saw this was probably like on a fourteen-inch CRT monitor. <laughs> you know, like you know the, the 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 first time I saw it, I think, and then now I saw it on my fifty-five-inch, you know, LCD, right? And and it's <laughs> yeah, it 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 surprised like the doors and the the buildings moving. It still it looks good. The the glass aliens yeah you know 98 i guess uh but yeah well and no those effects actually have been redone uh they were redone for the special edition but that was back in 2005 so even though they're better than 1998 effects they're still not as good as 2018 effects and you know never will be oh okay so yeah yeah because the 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 glass aliens aren't you know it's they're hard to do apparently yeah (laughs) that's all i'm gonna say the what's next uh william hurt goes to Kiefer Sutherland. Um, so we get we get a little scene there. Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland. Um, he's he's important at the end of the movie. At the beginning of the movie, he sort of uh, he he appears briefly to keep the plot in motion, and then he disappears for long stretches of the movie. He's he's uh, all about the plot resolution and not so much about the plot as it's uh, as it's churning. We do get. Um, in this segment too, we we get we check back in on Detective Walensky, who uh, <laughs> is uh, riding the subway in circles. He says over every inch, 
Uh, I don't know who any of us are. Again, he knows the truth. He knows the truth. Um, and let's see what else happens in there. Oh, and this is it. So, so Dr. Schraber, Kiefer Sutherland, uh, he gets to go through the tunes through a door to the strangers assembly line of personal items where they are building (laughs) on a large assembly line. They've got all the various personal items that they're going to put out through the city. And this is your, this is, this is yet another step along in the storyline where you realize the pure artificiality of dark city they are they are putting together um personal items for deployment in the city um and then the question is why does why does rufus sewell not sleep uh Kiefer sutherland says uh, maybe he evolved after all figuring out about humanity and how we work and what what our possibilities are isn't that the point of your whole little zoo that you have here, which is like, oh. And you get some idea of the scale as well in this first scene, because up until now, everything has taken place just, you know, effectively in the city. Yes. And now you get to see below the city and you realise, oh, there's a whole city below the city that we see. There's a factory that is being run by these people or whatever they are to make everything happen in the city. And this is immediately followed, by the way, by the let's shut it down. There's a statue with a big head that opens up and there's a clock inside and it and it stops (laughs) and everybody kind of like uh, buildings rise out of the ground. It's very Mm -hmm. uh, like uh, very previous to uh, Inception or Doctor Strange or something like that. Like this is one of your maybe there's precursors to this one, but I feel like this must have been a a very important uh imagery kind of thing of like oh yeah cities that slide around and things pop up and all of that 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 happens several times but it starts here they are tuning the city all together um we see uh, there's a whole uh montage like they bring in a new person they're injecting people in the head with memories there's that there's the 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 working class couple and and they get injected with new memories and their table grows long and it becomes Mm -hmm. you know all of this stuff is happening and and this is the moment where it's like this entire city is completely controlled by these strangers and they are doing everything here and nothing is real and uh and then uh you know then everybody wakes well, and up you realize that the insane detective was right you know this is Absolutely. really the, sort of the truth the point where you think oh and that's why they had to kill him of course before this scene uh you know have to commit suicide <laughs> before because yeah that's when you realize oh he's he was right all along this really is nothing is real none of these yeah. people are who they say they are or who they think they are i should say um i just want to quickly point out um keith sutherland's character dr schreiber uh is based on a, a real dr daniel schreiber a german doctor who uh ah. was who did lots of research around schizophrenia and was himself schizophrenic um and at the time his work was dismissed as unimportant and fanciful um it was way ahead of his time it's real tragedy actually uh and one of his delusions was that he was surrounded by quote fleeting men which he believed were souls from heaven that resided temporarily in human bodies. Hmm. So, I mean, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you know if uh, the real Dr. Schreiber, did he walk with a limp? Do you know, I'm not sure about that, yeah. Because not knowing that he was based on a real person, that's one of my my issues with this movie. You know, it's rare in movies to get any kind of uh, depiction of disability. And when we do, it's almost always to make a character seem creepy or evil or it's wrapped up in a character right, that's yeah. like that so that oh, I, just... no, I think i think that's sort of explained at the end where he, he's shown 
be, being like basically beaten up by the strangers, like in a flashback <laughs> where he says that they use they use him because he's a psychiatrist. It, it is explained, but. Yeah. Eric is right that it's initially used to make him seem creepy and right. weird and, you know, untrustworthy. Like the mad scientist trope. Right. But he's yeah. not. That's the thing. Is there is a twist mm-hmm. there. But yeah, it's playing on that trope. Absolutely. And, and he's apparently the only person who can use a syringe. <laughs> he is. He's the only one qualified. The, the, the strangers say what, say what you will about the strangers. <laughs> yeah. They only want qualified medical practitioners. They know it? how to delegate. Yeah. yeah they, can, they can rearrange a whole city. They make, you know, a little trinket for people and they you know they'll they'll elongate the table and all of that stuff but you know using a syringe you need a degree for that speaking of the trick the trinkets the, the trinkets that they make that is that is the the other the other sort of like the splinter in my mind to use a line from the matrix mm-hmm. uh about this movie is the fact that they're they're making all of these 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 objects and you know they're hand delivering these giant candelabras to the the table of the the working class couple and yet then when the room stretches and the table gets bigger and bigger <laughs> all of these other things including more candles just appear in the middle of the table so why do some of them need to be handcrafted and some of them they can just make with their minds it just that bothers me i don't know <laughs> it shouldn't bother me but it does i could headcan something up for you but i got nothing um <laughs> i i wanted at this point i think is where i want to say one of the things that i appreciate about this movie every time i watch it is the pacing because i would i want to actually posit that this movie is perfectly paced because at no point do i feel like it's dragging yes and at no point do i feel like it's rushing like when we get the reveal here it's the right time we've got all the information and then this the movie moves on to its next chapter its next act like this is a this is a change in the movie now we know what's going on there's a major plot point here which is that one of the strangers gets injected with the memories that were supposed to go into murdoch um which apparently you just mix together little bits of memory like paint which i don't think is how memory works but (laughs) again it's dark city forget about it um mr hand gets his memories right and well and there and so there are serial killers memories yes so so uh, pacing wise, it's like this is. I I feel like we get to this point. This is the point where we know enough that this reveal can happen, and then this sets us on the next journey, which is Mr. Hand now has all the memories of a human, which they say is very dangerous, and it's a serial killer. What could go wrong? Um, he immediately goes to May, the prostitute, and kills her. By the way, that is the next thing that he does because yep. he is, <laughs> you know, he's like leaning in to being a human being. Um, but I think pacing wise, um, this is that moment where I'm like, oh yeah, like that was the right time. And now we're on to the next thing. And I feel like the whole movie is like that, where I never feel like there's, as as Anthony, I think, said earlier, there's never a missing, an extraneous piece. Everything matters. Everything is there for a reason. But nothing lasts longer than it should. Either. Exactly. Everything does what it needs to do. And then it moves on to the next thing. Um, and most yeah, movies it, are not like even that. The later, <laughs> it, right. Even the later sequence with Uncle Carl which could easily have been a long self-indulgent sequence that oh let's go and you know go and make a cup of tea isn't it it's still even that is compelling and keeps you watching it is uh, yeah i agree with you this uh, i would posit the usual suspects is another a movie like hmm. that there are there aren't many but yeah there are a few movies that are just once you start watching them they drag you through the whole movie there are no uh no flabby bits there's no room to breathe which yeah, right. honestly i'm i'm yeah. on the other side here guys i don't i don't like the pacing of this movie Interesting. <laughs> i always i always want i always want to love this movie 
but because of the the ideas and the the noir, because I love noir, and then you know anything about the nature of reality and humanity and personality and, and all that kind of stuff, and, and wrapped up in the package that has the visual style of this, it's like yes, I should love this movie. But because it just it is it's like riding a freight train. It doesn't. There's no time to to breathe to huh. actually like let things settle in my head. So I always have trouble. I, I like it a lot better now. The first time I saw it, I wasn't sure what I thought about it. Since I've I've had time for everything to sort of stew together and and figure out how the pieces fit, I like it more. Uh, it was the first time that Stephen watched it. He did not like it huh. for that reason. Um, and and I think part of it is is sort of what's baked into the premise and that's the idea that none of these people are actually who these people are so one of the things i like about fiction is taking time to sort of like dig into the personalities of the characters that we're watching and this this can't be that kind of movie because right because they're all types yeah, so they have to be sort of like paper dolls that you know you can you know put on put on a different outfit. This outfit is you're a serial killer. This outfit is you sing in a nightclub. Um, so so lacking lacking a character to sort of get in the head of to understand what's happening. It was uh, Stephen described it as being punched in the face by the end of the movie. <laughs> so <laughs> so I think it's I think it is exactly what it sets out to be, and I certainly wouldn't change it. It's just that is that is not an aspect that works for me. Although I will say the the uh, Uncle Carl sequence, uh, I love the fact that uh, he's supposed to have a burn on his arm and he doesn't have one. Yeah. And that's when it actually dawned on me, you know, that this is like, they're all just like, like Eric has said, like just paper dolls. And I actually mm-hmm. kind of love that. Yeah. I just, I kind of, cause before you kind of, you know, they, they, they'd give him extra memories or whatever, but this actually just kind of made it so that it's, well, I don't you, know, you it's, almost assume that, that Rufus Sewell is because things didn't go right for him, that he is himself. Yes. Yes. And that's not yes. true. Right. It's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that it's all interchangeable, and, and 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 I don't know. That's sort of I don't know. It's like a like it's a layer, like a half a layer beyond just people being injected with uh, like memories for me. Like it makes it a little cooler. <laughs> well, and the thing with the burn on the arm ties into again uh, the sort of you you see in William Hurt's character especially, but in a lot of the other characters as well, where people don't question and again i think this is an interesting sort of thing that the movie talks about is that taking things for granted taking memories for granted assuming something has always been this way so why would i bother checking and explaining away when somebody you know when was the last time you ever saw the sun oh well i work a lot of nights i don't get a lot of sleep it's like no no think about (laughs) i don't want to think about it Mm -hmm. i've got a work to do i've got a job to do and the uncle carl the burn on the arm thing is it's a small part of that but i think a significant one because yeah it raises the same question of it clearly never occurred to this man to occur to look at his arm and think hang on a minute i don't have that burn that my memories say i should have um oh, by the way i want to mention because mr hand is on the case um and he finds jennifer Connolly and uh is uh and he's super creepy. But before we do that, this is where Wolensky jumps in front of the train because before that he has to impart to Rufus Sewell, uh, Murdoch, that uh, the Shell Beach Express won't stop. He has that moment where he's like trying to find the right place on the map to get oh, to Shell Beach. No, you're right. And he gets yeah. off. And because they're like, oh, you need to take the express. But then the express doesn't stop at that station. And why doesn't it stop? Because it's the express. Because it's an express. express. That's so awesome. (laughs) And that's when Walensky's like, oh, you know, 
I've I've been to all the stops. You can't get to Shell <laughs> Beach. This is a game that you you know you can't win. You, so so why play? And he jumps onto the tracks, and that's the end of Walensky. But he's not wrong, and that he has now imparted that wisdom to uh, to Murdoch. Oh, so that's my mistake. I thought they that he died before we actually saw for ourselves. You know the underground city, but no. So I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. That. So he comes. He that's his that's his last uh, last his big moment. And he's and he's trying to find uh, Shell Beach, but uh, uh, and he does find Uncle Carl though, as you said. And and then we get our. He doesn't have the scar that he's supposed to have. And what is the meaning of childhood photos when it's all just a setup? Um, and then on the other plot line right here is. Um, there's the uh, Melissa George's character. The prostitute has been uh, has been killed. The detective is following the girl under the bed. Drew the three tall men in hats, stabbing her mother. So yeah, <laughs> I think we got a new suspect here, and um, and then we get uh, there's so much. Okay, a lot of things happen really fast here, Erica. You're right. There's my notes yep. get super frantic at this point because there's <laughs> they are now they are now like uh, the 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 gears have shifted. Maybe maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna change my statement to say I feel like the reveal comes at exactly the right time. Yeah, that for sure. that that it doesn't feel rushed to the reveal. No, I'll double down. I really think <laughs> that from because from that point on, when you, once you've got the reveal, uh, that reveal, there's only one other major revelation right. really to come and that is you know you you go okay well i know all this but i still don't know where they right. are and what is the deal and you know why exactly is this guy running around and why is he immune so that's the only thing really you know john murdoch himself is the only right. thing really that we need to find out now and so slowing down at this point i think would have done the movie a disservice instead once you get to this revelation it's like okay now let's go just go headlong to the climax mm-hmm. and to the, the central mystery of John Murdoch, which it does exactly, and that's why I love it. Yeah, the moment that I, I think is really good with Carl and John is also the um, and it was mentioned earlier, but I really love those moments in this movie where where some a character is like <laughs> because because this is Dark City, right? It's always dark. There yeah. for a long time, it's not commented on that there's literally never day- daylight here, and then the, the, there is that moment where John says to Carl, "Like, what happened to the day? What time is it? Is it's like eight a.m. or p.m. <laughs> like, it's never yeah. light. This whole place is fake. It's a, imagine like because you could see a noir." you know movie that's always set at night or or any kind of like movie that wants to be super stylish and set at night but this is not that this is literally a place that is always nighttime um and and i think that's i think that's great that's what what i was getting at with the uh the the clock because i love the fact that he's he's actually looking at the clock and it's like what what time is it like is it and you just see uncle carl going well what are you talking about it's it's, why are you asking yeah, well, and it's like it, it kind of feeds into the paranoia where he 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 you know he's the crazy one in uh, quotes right right mm-hmm. but I don't know like like Anthony said like that whole scene with the, the, I think the uncle's kind of perfect like he's in a wheelchair there's the uh, the pictures which which do have daylight and it's kind of oh we were at the beach and then you know it's I don't know that whole yeah. thing kind of works for me where it does kind of give you a breather is the the little boat ride they have. Yeah. going i think we're just getting to that the info dump <laughs> right although that that that's because they need to give you the info that Kiefer Sutherland yes you know imparts about the reality of the world although it's worth noting that we're in the theatrical version where a lot of that is reused 
for the introductory voiceover. As a result, that boat ride is much shorter. Right. So even though the pacing is different, it's still there's still nothing more there than needs to be there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and and and, uh, and Andre, as you were saying about how the 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 memories, the fa- flashbacks, and then the, also the pictures are so bright, I find that super effective because everything else has been so dark. It's only when we get like the teeniest, tiniest bit of his his memory. Like uh, the way I figure it is, the reason he's got these weird memories of Shell Beach, or those are like the earliest memories that would have been injected into him, and that's all that made it into his head before he threw Kiefer Sutherland across the room. So every time you get one of those. It's just like this visually arresting, like, whoa, what what is happening? Suddenly this movie is incredibly bright. Um, and then later we get the line, uh, I, I don't think the sunlight even exists in this place, which A, I thought was really poetic, and B, I live in Edmonton and it's almost winter. And I was thinking, oh, this movie is speaking to my soul. <laughs> oh, that's sad. That's sad, but true. Oh, uh, excellent. Um, one of the things we haven't commented on really uh, yet that I wanted to point out is the arrogance of the aliens as well which is, I think, again, something that could have been overdone uh, Mm -hmm. because, you know, we've all seen arrogant aliens of like, ah, you will never be a match for us puny humans. But it's not that here. It's more more an arrogance born of... Uh, You know, our society has been around for a lot longer than yours. I mean, they they say at one point it would take several of your lifetimes to develop our skills. Right. And it's 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 more a mystification. Guess not. <laughs> right. It's it's not just arrogance born of snobbery. It's more a kind of they genuinely don't understand how the human mind works because they're this hive mind and we're right. individuals. So it's born of a confusion and a sort of mystification rather than just pure snobbery. And I think that that's again a really good choice because it if it had been just snobbery uh, you know, it, it just wouldn't have been as effective. They're doing an actual experiment, so they scientifically are paying attention to all these things, so it doesn't right, right. make sense. Yeah, but it's also like a legit motive for the experiment, like a twisted one, I'll admit. But like, there's, you can, like, like Anthony said at the beginning, like, it's a smart movie. Like, that makes it sort of okay, because it's not just we're bad aliens doing experiments to, you know, just figure out the soul. It's the sort of an existential threat for them. Right, it's, it's not tell me about this human thing called love you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes exactly exactly that's what it's, yeah. we're dying and we need to figure yeah. out a way to survive <laughs> yeah which almost makes you forgive them for kidnapping random people not really but almost you know and this we actually have reached the segment of the movie where all of this happens so we get the staircase stretches the buildings are changing again this is our big confrontation we get the info dump from the from the aliens themselves the city is ours we made it out of different eras so there is your uh, anachronism yep. explanation here we're searching for what makes you human we use your dead as vessels i always like that line just like oh by the way yep. these are corpses right here these are yep. corpses <laughs> um there's the there's the the buildings uh they're on the fire escape running around and like everybody's trying to get off the fire escape because a building is coming in to smash presumably i thought to myself how do they know it's not going to stop but it's like it's not going to stop they're going to smash one building against another building and a guy a guy does get crushed but not rufus Sewell. he breaks a window and goes in so that was good that's part of the, it's planned. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that as well, because everybody goes to sleep, you know, when they do that usually, right? So who's not to say somebody was just hanging out, you know, on the... in, that, in that alley and they got squished. <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't, you know, whatever. You got to break a few eggs. Yeah, that's right. We got, we get the, um, you know, the, 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 the creepy, the creepy kid, um, the creepy kid bites Rufus Sewell's hand while he's holding on for dear life, with, yeah. but another part of the building comes up. 
I love that because, yeah, like he, at that point, does he still have his little knife or his? Yes. Yes, because there's a whole scene where he's dragging the knife edge yeah. on the on the wall, and then yeah, when he gets yeah. to him, he bites ah, him. Yep. I hate right. that. Like so that's it's super, so annoying. Super creepy. Just use the <laughs> knife, but yeah, apparently with the knife, you know, it would have been over too quickly. But you know, the the chimney hasn't gone far enough yet, so <gasps> he has to bite him. The yeah. um, they do get he does uh, this scene kind of climaxes with uh, the car because everybody wakes up again and so Bumstead and and uh, Jennifer Connelly uh, pick her uh, or pick him up in their car and they 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 zip away and we get another one of those when do you remember doing something during the day the night never ends he's downloading to them now what he's learned um, but of course uh, the the strangers are out and about and they're killing everybody. Um, and it's time to go to Dr. Schreiber and figure out what the heck is going on. Um, they're going to go to Shell Beach. Bumstead's going to go too. Um, the strangers get Jennifer Connelly and say they're going to reprogram her and she's going to be Anna from now on. Um, and uh, we get more we get more plot download too, which is uh, as has been mentioned earlier a little bit. You know, we we were kidnapped. That's what they say. So they, we these people were kidnapped and taken here, wherever here is. Um, this is an experiment. If we assemble the past of a killer, will you become a killer? Um, Kiefer Sutherland explains they're dying. They think we can save them. They need my skills as a scientist and a really good injector of things, apparently. But <laughs> but they deleted everything else. So he is a broken man who does not remember anything about his past right. what we might have been before and they but they do finally get to the end of a corridor and open the door and there it is shell beach or at least a painting of shell beach that is on a wall <laughs> oh, yeah. so good i love this so sequence good. so much it's the the height of despair or the depths of despair as you say when they mm-hmm. they've got there and it's exactly what's on the postcard it's exactly yeah. what he's yeah. been looking for and it's shot through the door where you can see kind of like the right. color mm-hmm. unlike yeah. Of, shell, of a beach and then it's just it's a poster a, on a brick wall mm. but then it's not and the revelation <laughs> that comes after that the fact that you have that incredible depth of despair followed by the massive the biggest revelation in the entire movie is just such a huge one to I mean I suppose that is like getting punched in the face it's such a one two <laughs> of story that's what makes it so powerful to me again perfectly timed and I, I also love the fact that when they start tearing the poster off there's no words. They just pick up like sledgehammers or pipes or yep. whatever and just yep. start wailing at the wall. Like, I really, I, I really love that because there's no, let's see what's, there's no dialogue there. It's just, yeah, let's just smash the wall. We'll see, you know, and they just mm-hmm. go at it. I love that, like that, that, that thing. It's so, I don't know. It's great because it, there's, it, there, it's literally a postcard. It's so awesome. I, just, I will say when they finally, when there's the hole and you see space, and then um, when, uh, like Anthony said, there's the big reveal. And then when um, uh, William Hurt goes into space, uh, when he floats in space, he does this turn, which really, like the whole, like, I think the reveal is kind of nice. I think the CGI works, yeah, you know. You, where you see the whole thing floating as well. And so you get a sense of the scale. Yeah, it's it's majestic and stuff. But then there's this, the, when William Hurt's in space, you see this shot of him just slowly kind of, you know, doing a barrel roll. <laughs> and it just, it's, it feels so cheap. 
Who contrasted with the, you know, reveal, the majestic reveal of the city. I oh, know, I like it because it's... Oh, really? Okay. I, yeah, because, because it's almost like he's turning around and finally seeing... He's the detective and he's finally got the answer. Mm-hmm. He sees with his own eyes the truth, which is, you okay. know, what every stereotypical noir detective is always looking for. And it's the last thing he will ever see. I think that's brilliant. Okay, okay. I just think like the majesty of, you know, seeing the whole city for the first time and it's like this helpless man in space. I guess that's the point. It just felt weird to me. Like it just, I don't know. It just felt, it felt very cheap compared to the, you know, majesty of the reveal. But okay. I, I do get that, you know, the last thing he sees and he kind of solves the mystery yeah. pretty much. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Congratulations. You're dead in space yeah. now. <laughs> My question about this sequence is the fact I, it had been a while since I had seen the movie, so I could not remember what they were going to find. So I enjoyed the reveal um, of the, the postcard sort of wall there but Kiefer Sutherland's character Dr. Schreiber does not want to go there like he is yeah. he is adamant and he's like he's frightened and scared and apparently in the um in the director's cut Rufus Sewell has to use tuning to actually like convince him to go and so I was kind of this time expecting there, there to be like a window to space or something that would actually really terrify him as opposed to a giant picture of a lady on a beach so can somebody help me understand why uh, the doctor doesn't want to go there so, so intensely? I think it's possibly because, and this is a little bit of headcanon, I suppose, but I think it's because he know he knows what's there and he knows how Murdoch will react. And don't forget, he also knows that Murdoch has these powers. So I mm. think it's more a kind of self-preservation of like, I don't want to be around this person when he realizes that everything is a lie. And, ah, okay. you know, like, it just becomes the ultimate nihilist. <laughs> yeah, and like the, the, this whole journey to the postcard, right? It, it's just it's it's not needed in the doctor's mind, right? He just wants to inject, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, Sewell with the syringe again. You know, he just wants to do that. There's no he knows what's there. Just don't go there. And yeah, like Anthony said, I think she just doesn't want to be around a person that's been searching for a beach and then comes and finds a giant postcard, basically. So I can accept that, though it doesn't feel great. <laughs> And dangerous, right? With powers that he's like, I know you're not going to find the beach. I know you're going to get bad. I know what's on the other side of the wall. Can we not do this? I have a plan. And they're like, no, no, no. We are on a quest to find Shell Beach. We have to see. She's like, all right, well, you're not going to like it. (laughs) Mulder, don't do the thing. Scully, I'm going to do the thing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, go ahead. Do the thing. You're going to see. You will see. Uh, yeah, so they're, it's, they're in outer space, and the strangers appear. Oh, no! Bumstead is blown into space. Oh, well, at least I was right, and I found the answer. Goodbye! <laughs> the city is floating in space. Uh, they take, they, they threaten Jennifer Connolly and say, you gotta come with us, and he surrenders, and they take him underground to their, uh, their underground city-controlling factory thingy. Uh, the experiment is declared over, shut it down forever. This is the point where I want to mention the other thing about this movie that reminds me of another movie from the 90s. All of the design of the stranger's lair and the way that the stranger's lair is shot reminds me very much of 12 monkeys yes oh yeah yeah where it's the weird place where all of the people who are sort of running the experiment or on time travel are talking to bruce willis right that super yeah, weird yeah. Uh, portion of that movie. Well, which in itself is a callback to Brazil as well. Which is, well, and Terry Gilliam is, you know, yeah. So, right, uh, yeah. but that, 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 I got a real 12 Monkeys vibe and I looked it up and it's like 95. Yeah, it's like, okay. 
It's the yeah. 90s. Well, and I, th- <laughs> I think Proyas and Gilliam also are both drawing on, and, and Proyas in this movie is definitely drawing on things like German Expressionism, The Cabinet of Dr. De Gall- Caligari, uh, M, Nosferatu, you know, the, that sort of look, uh, cinematic look. And obviously Gilliam, I know, is influenced by that stuff as well. So I don't know whether it's uh, whether 12 Monkeys itself was necessarily an influence on how Proyas shot this movie, uh, but... They're all They're drawing from the same well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for what it's worth, uh, I think I think I rented this on iTunes. That Twelve Monkeys was one of the related suggestions. I can see it for people who <laughs> like this movie. Yeah, that's a great movie. It is. Mm-hmm. We haven't done an episode on that one either. Yeah, that'll have. That's we'll another have to do movie that. I want to love. <laughs> we haven't mentioned Ian Richardson yet, have we? No, Mister Book, the leader yes. of the Strangers, who is just super superbly cast in my opinion Ian Richardson you know not a household name in uh, to most people in America or Indeed. outside the UK really which is why he's not in my notes at all he's like he's the guy <laughs> right. who, the guy who plays Mr. Book ah uh, no but he's wonderful uh, right Ian Richardson most people if they know him at all will know him as he played Francis Urquhart in the original House of Cards the original BBC yep. production of House mm-hmm. of Cards um, and he is you know one of our grandest most stately, you know, just dripping with gravitas actors. Uh, and so having him in this, not only dressed up in a silly outfit, but then delivering those wonderful stentorian lines with such seriousness and such gravity is one of the things that really sort of grounds the movie for me because it's a bit like uh, Ian McKellen. Like, he just, as soon as you see him and he opens his mouth, you take it seriously. You can't help but think okay this is real i believe every word of this Uh, i believe this is happening somewhere in the universe Uh, so yeah i think he's just brilliantly cast i have no idea why prayas cast him what he'd seen him in if it was house of cards or something else but it was a fantastic choice and he also has uh, his head is split open i think in a couple of shots that's where i figured out Mm -hmm. oh yeah those are actual bodies you just get right, right. them back. <laughs> yeah. Like they are, yes, bodies. You can so. see where they got in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So then we get we get our last little plot movement. It is the most important reason that Kiefer Sutherland is here. And it's good. I really like this. I really like this moment. So they're like, they're going to, uh, they want to inject uh, Rufus Sewell with a with a, a good, uh, or with, what is it, with their knowledge or something like that. I, mm-hmm. And uh, instead, what happens is Dr. Schreiber has hidden of a, a, a syringe in his jacket that he injects. Instead. No, it's, it's in uh, it's in John's jacket. John, well, that's, yeah, that was the his I meant is he has hidden it in, in his jacket was Rufus Sewell's jacket anyway. Um, and inside that is uh, is a bunch of memories that are actually memories of Dr. Schreiber in all the points of his life teaching him how to beat the strangers. So he injects him with the solution to the story, which is here's how you tune, here's what you need to do, you can be in charge of the city, you can we can get rid of them, we can all be free. Um and it's some you know it's a solution in solution form. And it's all yep. and it's all oh, that very good, yeah. it's a, um <laughs> and it's all in that he's the mailman, he's the te- the homeschool teacher sells yeah. ice cream. He's a fireman, fantastic. Hi- hypnotic, yeah, it's the hypnotic backmasking sound, all of that. And he's he's all the characters in his life are Dr. Schraber explaining to him what he needs to do. And he sounds more like normal Kiefer Southern. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. <laughs> well, and he also doesn't have a limp and doesn't have the um the burned the burn over his, his eye. eye yeah. uh, <laughs> it's kind of it's um 
Schreiber's self-image, his ego image, mm-hmm. uh, which is injected rather than the reality, right. which is, again, another nice little like, touch that's kind of understandable and makes sense. But at first, you may not notice. Also similar to The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, whole, that, that whole sequence, the way it's done... I, this is something new for me because I watched it like today, basically. But it kind of looks like uh, the stuff in Bioshock, the Bioshock game series, because there's a lot of oh, flashbacks yeah, there, yeah. and it's sort of it's sort of the same aesthetic. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure they got it from this because that whole so, effect, yeah. like, it's not that unique. But it really, when I saw that, I was like, that's sort of that's pretty much Bioshock right there. Because it's it's a great. I don't know if anybody any of you has played. Like, I imagine Anthony has, but it's like a great. Like, it's a three part game series, and it's awesome. It really just it's so so similar. I don't know. It at least felt that like that to me, and that was new uh, this time around. So yeah, I just love the fact that you know the the whole idea of inserting himself into the entire lifetime memories of this character. That's that's such a, a neat trick because quite often in in movies and books it bothers me a bit when we get you know the hero is on this hero's journey and becomes really powerful and like a real expert in their craft without a whole lot of practice and sometimes mm-hmm. they don't even get a training montage and then at the end of the movie I'm like I want to I want to be with you and yet I feel like you haven't quite earned it this is the perfect shortcut the perfect way he has been training for this yes. his entire life so I absolutely believe it yeah. when he pops up and just lays waste to everything starts flying mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah no absolutely it is it is so clever that it that it does it this way which because i don't feel like it's a cheat i don't i feel yep. like we've earned it with schraper and with everything yep. he's doing like the movie gets us to this point and in another movie right somebody gets injected with something that magically makes them an expert at everything i don't know like kung fu wait a second that's a different movie <laughs> no that, <laughs> that one works for me too these are these are perfect shortcuts it, it does but it, it it isn't the thing that solves the movie at the end right it that happens oh, earlier true. on yeah. Here, if that if this was the solution was oh it's a magic thing pill that you take that makes you awesome, I would feel ripped off. But that instead mm-hmm. it is completely consistent in the world. Of course, this is how Schreiber all along, even while he's been collaborating with the strangers, has been planning to defeat them by yep. doing this. And this is the moment where it all comes together. Waiting to find a human who can tune. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a, this is another uh, plank in that th- whole. Uh, thing about memories and are you more than your memories or you know how much of you is tied up in them because he hasn't been practicing he hasn't actually had any of this training or experience but he thinks he has and if it's all in your mind he, you know because it's all right exactly so how much of it is in the mind and i'm not saying i have any answers to this i just think it's fascinating that the movie at almost every step asks that question again like how important are memories are they everything is there more to us than them can we behave in a way counter to our experiences and memories or are they sufficient to sort of drive us through the day all the way through the movie's asking these questions i just find that fascinating and i think that i think the scene is as effective as it is because again they put a lot of effort into it like we were just saying he was like like five different people in those memories and they like took the time to shoot every scene and stuff oh each shot lasts like one and a half seconds or something yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and it's like you know he like i don't know costumes sets everything he just gives it a couple of layers and you kind of you believe it that by the end of it oh, you and know? some of some of them are also the only incidences i believe of location shooting in the whole movie that's the other thing about this movie is the the apart from those flashbacks everything is a set 
Nothing is a location. None of the buildings, none of the, the, the automat, the apartments, none of it. It is all constructed sets. And that's another thing that adds to the artificiality of the whole setting. And again, it's one of those things that, you know, you don't, you don't know it, but you can maybe feel it like you're watching that everything just kind of feels stylized and constructed rather than real. So, um, at this point, with the with victory over the strangers, Rufus Sewell says, I can make this world anything I want to as long as I concentrate hard it's enough. It's a very fourth doctor at the end of the key to time moment. Okay. <laughs> Never forget Benro the heretic. Um, and he releases water. But, but here's the thing. that's What does he want to do? What he wants to do is make Shelby Trial. So he releases water. He he sculpts the land so that there's a lighthouse and a beach. And he tilts the city. And he tilts the city so that the sun comes up. Or he creates a, or sun, creates a sun that's within the uh, within the, the bounds of their shell. I'm pretty sure that we see the city tilt. Yeah, the city does. The city does tilt. I, I always assume they yeah. were in a solar system, perhaps even our solar system, and uh, they're just floating out in space. And now it's tilted so that they get so that they get the sun. Um, I thought it was just the camera tilting as the sun came up, but hmm. Uh, uh, I, I, I need to watch it <laughs> yeah, again. That's, that's not how I've ever read it. I've always I've always read it that he that he turns it away to the uh, yeah. Just only because I I had thought that before I watched it again and then when we saw the earlier shot of like William Hurt floating out in, in space and, and we see it like I, I didn't see any place where, where I thought there there was a, a close enough star to actually side. be the sun so I was like oh my god at the end of this time I was actually even more impressed with uh, with what John Murdoch does because he actually <laughs> creates yeah. their own local sun and I was like yeah damn go <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I think because uh, CGI is always uh, uh, harder to do when, when it's light, I kind of like the fact that the movie doesn't sort of shy away from that because I think it's kind of convenient if everything's always in the dark, the CGI can look <laughs> better. But like they do have a couple of CGI scenes in the in the sun, basically, and it, they, they still look OK. So I'll, I'll just say that uh, Mr. Hand is dying, but uh, he does get a chance to chat with Murdoch before the end and says they've been searching in the wrong place he, he says to understand humanity you gotta you gotta search in our heart man that's where it is that's where i'm glad he didn't actually like point to his chest yeah, I, or I, I was too i was like don't do it don't do, don't the understanding uh, was inside us all along we we, we got it we got it and, and and so the final scene is he opens a door and there's a pier and standing at the end of the pier is Jennifer Connelly, but of course she's Anna now, so she doesn't know him. But he introduces himself, her, himself, and it's like, "Hey, we want to go over to the want to go over to the beach. Yeah, let's go mm-hmm. over there." And uh, they walk to Shell Beach, and that is the end of the movie. And I love it. I love how this movie ends with, <laughs> yeah. "Here we, hey, it's sun, it's light out, Shell Beach. I've made Shell Beach. It exists now. Let's go to Shell mm-hmm. Beach. Yeah, cool. The end. And that's the end of Dark City. And the beautiful irony." the reversal where now he is the one who possesses memories of her and she has no memory, no memory of, him, of him, yeah. which is a complete reversal mm-hmm. of where they were at the start of the movie. It's wonderful. Yep. Yep. And it's, it's just got that glorious open-endedness. It's like, you know, the, the ship that launched a thousand fix, like there's, you can do anything in this <laughs> world in your head after this. And it's just wide open. And I kind of love that. Oh yeah, and and uh, talking about nothing being left to, to, to chance in this movie, uh, they do explain that all of the memories are sort of uh, been destroyed. 
So mm-hmm. every person living there now is the, per, the, the person that, you know, the memories they have at that moment. Like there's right. not going to be new syringes. That they were last injected with, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, basically. Which is a kind, it's kind of nice to, you know, have a closure for the rest of the inhabitants, I mm-hmm. think. They get to move forward as, as whoever they basically, are. Basically, yeah, yeah. And I, I, and I think like that, that is what Anthony was saying. Like it's a, it's a thought out movie, man. It's like really, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of hard to argue with stuff. Yeah. By the end of yeah, it. Yeah, it's it genuinely is one of my all time favorites. I mean, like I say, you know, the fact that I chose it as one of my sort of birthday episodes <laughs> of Unjustly Maligned <laughs> shows you how much I loved it. And one of the things, just speaking to a wider point, one of the reasons I love it is it's a really good example, especially with the whole theatrical director's cut thing. It's a really good example of why as a as an artist and creator myself, I I think it's always a mistake to water things down because you think an audience won't get them because that's exactly what happened here it tested Mm -hmm. really badly uh and the studio said they literally said to Breast, you have to make it you have to make it you know dumb it down you have to make it stupider uh because it's not um intelligible enough to a mass audience and that's nonsense of course it's nonsense but that's what they said that's why you get the voiceover and you know some of the changes etc but and as a result this movie is I mean, I still think it's great, but it was a bit of a failure at the box office, unfortunately, uh, compared to The Matrix, which obviously was an enormous, phenomenal success. And there are many reasons for that. Like I say, I'm not trying to run The Matrix down, but, you know, you sort of compare the two. And uh, a really good example of... Uh, that would be his Prius's previous movie, The Crow, where he didn't compromise and he didn't uh, do what the studio asked him to, and he did stick to his original vision. And what happens there is because the danger in watering down your, you know, sort of your original vision is that if you make something that's a bit dark and weird and edgy, and somebody says, "Oh no, people won't get that," you've got to, you know, compromise and stuff. If you do that, you then lose all the people who are looking for <laughs> something that is dark and weird and edgy, but it's still too dark and weird and edgy for the mass populace. And I think that's what happened with the theatrical cut of this movie. But it didn't happen with The Crow because he stuck to his guns. The Crow was dark and weird and edgy. And people like me who love that sort of thing flocked to it and told everybody else, my God, you have to see this movie. And so it had that mainstream success rather than trying to find a middle path that satisfies nobody. And I think that's, you know, a very apt lesson to take from this movie this movie and the way it was unfortunately you know kind of ruined a little bit uh and thereby you know kind of cut off at the knees in the cinema so regarding alex proyas i i I gotta mention so after he made this movie um his other major hollywood films are i robot in 2004 which i kind of liked i don't think it's great Mm, but i think it's it's okay okay. yeah that's right Chuck Taylors. It's not based on anything really in the Isaac Asimov. It's like, oh, a robot, you say. <laughs> um, he made Knowing, which is yeah. a Nicolas Cage movie and, and, and a flop <laughs> and a Flophouse selection, and Gods it's and Gods of bad. Egypt, which is also a Flophouse selection. Also bad. Oh dear. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know what happened with Alex Proyas. Well, there's a number of things going on. One of them is that he is notoriously difficult to work with. Uh, And he is, and I mean that from the studio's perspective, I have no idea sort of, you know, from the crew and the actors, but from a studio's perspective, he's really, really a bit of a perfectionist, quite stubborn, uh, you know, very contemptuous of the studio system. Um, And also, frankly, let's not forget his first major movie, The Star Died. 
yes. during filming. Sure. Oh, yeah. Randomly in the crowd, yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I really think that has had a profound effect. Because how could it not have a yeah. profound effect on your life as a as a creator and an artist when the thing what the thing you are most known for, the movie that everybody associates you with, is the one where your leading man was literally killed on set. That's that's got to screw you up, man. Yep. And then when the, you know, sort of the next movie, this one, which I, I feel like is, is the one that's sort of similar in creative vision and the darkness and the edginess and and and, and maybe seems the most true to what he was trying to achieve as a, a, a director uh, is a flop. Like that's that's not going to help you get back on the horse and yeah. go in that same direction. Yeah. And it's such a shame. Mm hmm. And then, and then you make knowing. And That's then you make awful. knowing with Nicolas Cage, yeah. which I've heard, I, I've not seen I hadn't it. even heard of it. I, I've heard that oh. it is a good, bad movie, but I don't know if that's actually true or not. I, I, I think I, I've, I've seen it and it's, it's, it's a sci-fi Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. It, you, huh. you know what you know what you're going to get from knowing. I mean, right, but it but it's not it's not face off or con air kind of like no. so over the top that you can watch it and just laugh at it. It is yeah. quite a mm. it's a it's treated seriously. It's just yeah. not very good. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. And the plot is bananas. Anyway, um, I will say this though, in the to the credits of Alex Proyas, in addition to directing Dark City, which I think is excellent, he directed the music video for my favorite song of all time, which is Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House. So good job, Alex really? Proyas. Wow. That's pretty wow. good. It's a pretty good video, yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh well done. So he's he is in the category, of course, of especially in this era, uh when he came up, uh being a music video director show some flash and some style and you'll get a feature you'll get to direct a feature right. mm-hmm. um that happened a lot in the 80s and 90s but david fincher is a great example right he was a music video <laughs> director and yeah like, i mean that's it can work you know these it, it can be a good path into feature making but yeah i should mention david s goyer by the way speaking of the flop yeah, house that, he wrote batman v yeah. superman dawn of justice so uh flop house selections all around for you're, you're in this business long enough um he's credited as a co-screenwriter along with proyas and lem dobbs who wrote um the limey which is a great yep. movie by the way great 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 movie and also haywire another Soderbergh mm-hmm. movie that's very underrated yeah so so the the uh the writing credits here these people went on to have interesting careers you know, David Goyer has did some good work, has done some work that maybe is not so good. Yeah, Dark Knight trilogy, Blade yeah, Trinity, yeah, exactly. You know, right. he's yeah, yeah. So just to just to list those there. But anyway, so Dark City. It was fun to revisit Dark City. It had been, I, I would say, actually too long. I uh, I watched this movie like many times in the early two thousands, but it had been a while, um, and so it was nice to watch it back. Watch the director's cut. Watch it in HD, which I think I probably yes. had never seen before because I think I just watched that DVD, and uh, it looked great. And uh, and I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed every minute of it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, everybody else have a good uh, good time, other than Stephen Shapansky, who did not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Stephen. Bad things some bounce off the control group sometimes. It happens. Yep. Yep. Yeah. As I've said, I absolutely love this movie. So I'll, I'll you know I didn't watch it specifically for this uh, podcast, but that's because I have seen it so many times. You've internalized the dark side, and it's only been just over a year since I did last see you it. Can the, t- yeah. Uh, that's know. how much you have right. <laughs> <laughs> and i do have the blu-ray and all that in fact I, this is a bit like blade runner this is one of those movies where i have bought it 
in I think every format in which it's been released. Ah, you're just <laughs> making me feel bad now. I just bought the one copy this weekend. Like this is not. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Anthony's bought enough to cover you as well, Ajay. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, but but honestly, like like I I do like this movie a lot, and it really did stay with me. So I was, I was so glad when when you guys brought it up and that I got get to talk about it because it's it's one of those movies that really it's you know if I'd had to do like a top ten sci-fi list for myself, I think it actually be on it so it's 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 why it's like and like jason said seeing it in hd not a weird divx you know <laughs> like, <laughs> version with divx wow That's pirate pirate copy off the back of a truck yeah yeah basically what was was really nice so so this was this was a lot of fun for me so yeah e- erica uh, uh Kiefer sutherland and pacing issues aside <laughs> did you actually enjoy it Oh yes, I mean I've I've seen this movie multiple times. I really oh, okay. I really right, like right. it. Like I just I I I always want to love it wholeheartedly and I can't quite get to that point but i do like it a lot and i think it's an, an excellent excellent piece of artistic film eric I, do, I don't know why Kiefer sutherland's <laughs> approach jason would be a problem for you like i'll, I'll say when i talked about the the accent uh, in the beginning uh-huh. like american accents like that that his performance is so over the top even i got the inflections when he spoke like that was <laughs> yeah. you know even for me that was too much and there's mm-hmm. always sort of a layer where you're not a native english speaker I think there's always a layer in between me and anybody that says anything, right? When they try to do an accent or an affectation like that. And that was just... That was yeah. <laughs> it's Igor. Yeah, yeah it, it is. I was just, yes, master. Oh, very good master. Renfield, baby. I so yeah. I haven't really yes, thought yes. of this before, but since we're talking about Kiefer Sutherland, it strikes me that maybe there is a good character actor in 1998 who might have been a better. actor for this part somebody who could do a weirdo who turns out to be the hero and have it not be (laughs) Kiefer sutherland what 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 was he actually up to in 1998 like i don't know how i really like Kiefer sutherland in this i don't i mean but then maybe that's just because i've seen it so many times it's hard for me to imagine anybody else in the part but i really don't have a problem with his performance in this i think it's okay but i think that there but like i and maybe it's just that since he was in this he's been in so many things as the key for sutherland part that it makes it harder for me to look at this now and, and think like what a weird choice for your super like uh messed up guy who is who is a collaborator but he turns out in the end like i I just, I just, he's, I think he's actually the hero. Yeah, I, I would, tr- I would. This is the kind of thing where I would cast uh, a a really, really great character actor, and not mm-hmm. somebody who's more or less a, a leading man. But, um, mm-hmm. but you know, his his career was in a different place in 1998. That so they probably viewed him that way. He was a leading man then too, though. I mean, I remember seeing it and being really shocked at that choice. And I mean, I. I I, I don't begrudge actors trying to do different parts, and sure. I, and I recognize that it's it's me that 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 is having the problem with seeing him in a different part. But I think layering so many affectations on to what we are used to seeing with him that doesn't necessarily equal a good performance. He was working hard. <laughs> 
he was he was he was really working hard to to do that yeah and i think it comes off like to anthony's point i think it comes off okay but it is super super affected and knowing more about keith or sutherland makes it even worse where you're like wow that's like he's got a limp he's got a thing on his eye he's got the breathy intonations like it, mm-hmm. it there's a lot going on there and i just i thought it it would be interesting to think of what a uh, uh, kind of veteran character actor who is used to playing those kinds of parts might have done that was both weirder and also maybe more subtle. But I don't know. Um, uh, you know, we'll never, we'll never know. know what William H Macy would have done with this part. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And it wasn't long after this actually that Sutherland did Phone Booth. I think was it that was fairly. That was fairly soon after this. So, as you say, his career was in a very different place. Yeah, that was 2002. Phone both was 2000, so yeah. Mm. Yeah, so Young Guns too. Anyway. <laughs> um... <laughs> oh, be still my heart. Oh, no, 2003. Yeah. Sorry, my mistake. Yeah. yeah, 2003. So it was five years after this. But I think the fact that he did a movie like Phone Booth, which I love, I think it's a great movie, I think that shows that, as you say, he's he was having a bit of a drought you know, uh, around that time. And of course that was just before 24. Yeah. He was about to re explode. Yeah. yeah. He was about to ma- break, break big with 24 and in, in 2001. So yeah, but you never know what the future holds. Do you, you never do. Well, that's mm-hmm. what I mean, sort of in hindsight, I had that thought of like, it would have been interesting if they had cast somebody who was used to playing these weirdo characters that were on the periphery instead of Kiefer Sutherland, who was maybe a little bit more, but again, I'm, I'm feeding 20 years of knowing about Kiefer Sutherland as a leading man into that. So, Right, okay, yeah. we've reached the end of Talking of Dark City. The sun has come up, and that means that all I have to do now is walk along Shell Beach with my friends who joined me on this journey. Anthony Johnston, thank you very much for being here. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, you can be Mr. Tree. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even mention all the nouns. They're all just nouns. Uh, Andrzej Tomic, yep. thank you so much for being here. You can be Mr. Clock. I, I, thank you for having me. I like Mr. Clock. Like that, It sounds good to me. So, yeah. I don't like Mr. Clock. He's evil and he injects people with memories. It's no good. No, he doesn't inject. <laughs> <laughs> only qualified people inject. He doesn't inject. He can't inject. It's right. He has his his beings uh, inject for him. Uh, Erica Ensign, you can be um, Ms. Fluffy Slippers. Fuzzy Slippers? Oh, I'll take it. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take it for sure. And thank you for being here happy to be here. I, you know what I learned from this movie and that is that uh, if you're a noir detective it's totally cool to drink a dead hooker's booze. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> some will play the accordion. Somebody's, somebody's got to do it, right? So, anyway. That, that really? Somebody has to do it? Yeah. In a noir, de- a noir detective? Uh, yeah, somebody's got to drink a booze. Sure. Uh, funny laws in America, Ranger. Yeah, yeah. Just a, it's a completely different country. It, it is. Well, you know, noir, the noir laws are very specific about all of this. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. We will see you next time. Shut it down! <laughs> <laughs> yeah.